0: Hey everyone, you're listening to God's Whole Story, a podcast of Worship Center. We know just how hard it is to read God's Word and understand it, so we decided to read the Bible chronologically this year and talk about it together. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey guys, it's Chelsea and Chris and Lindsay today, and we are in 2 Kings, talking about Josiah's religious reforms, and we jump into Nahum. Um, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so many things. What stuck out to you guys?
1: I mean, I think probably one of the first things that, that you see when, uh, Josiah is doing the reforming, it, it kind of evokes this response of like, finally, hmm. finally, s- somebody's really dealing with stuff. Somebody, finally, they're celebrating the Passover. Finally, they're doing so many of the things they were supposed to be doing. And, you know, we've had... Some good kings like Hezekiah, Mm -hmm. you know, we are just following the worst king in Judah, Manasseh. And now we've got Josiah, who's largely regarded as the best king, the best king of Judah because of all these different reforms he does. He's not perfect. We're going to see some of those things in coming days, but he does so much what a king was supposed to do. And he's destroying some of their idols and the pagan places of worship all the way back to Solomon. Hmm. Uh, It talks about him tearing down the poles that Solomon built. It talks about him tearing down the altar that Jeroboam built. And I mean, these have been around for hundreds of years and nobody has dealt with it.
0: Right. And Hezekiah did tear some things down, but it was not this in-depth like Josiah.
1: Right. So there's there's like glimmers of things, but Josiah is kind of the first guy that really just takes it as far. You know, to the degree that it's supposed to be done. And then for them to celebrate the Passover, uh, it, it can kind of seem like, oh, yeah, this is a good thing to do. But one of the things that's interesting is like, well, wait, when's the last time they did it? Like, how long has it been since they did celebrate the Passover? And this is something that hasn't been done literally for decades and, and centuries even. That it just goes back to like, wow, this is something that God told them to do every single year. In remembrance and it's gone so far and you kind of see just how people forgot people walked away so Josiah is one of the best kings because he's just he's leading the people back to kind of a pure form of worship and so you've got Judah bringing all these reforms and doing well and it's coupled with then a prediction against Nineveh against Assyria the enemies uh, of this day and it's that's kind of an interesting parallel uh, that you jump right into Okay, Judah's doing good, but somebody else is not going to be doing so well.
0: Yeah, so then we
2: jump into Nahum. Yeah, Nahum is a a fantastic book, in my opinion. I love (laughs) Nahum. Uh, And Nahum, just to give a little context to remind, because some of this history can just it's not our current history that we're familiar with. Um, and so Nahum is about Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. So if people remember, Jonah was a prophet to Nineveh, and the reluctant prophet mm-hmm. <laughs> told him to repent, and he didn't want to go, but they actually did repent. Mm-hmm. And they did some, we don't know for how long or what, but they did. And another thing about Nineveh or Assyria, we kind of use them interchangeably because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, is Assyria is the nation that conquered Israel or the Northern Kingdom when they split. Um, And they were the ones that conquered the Northern Kingdom, that God allowed Assyria to do that. And in this time, when this was written, Assyria, these are bad people. Can mm-hmm. I just say I don't think they are awful. We, they are awful. Like they weren't they were known as people that didn't just conquer other nations. They did it with the utmost cruelty. Like even historians today there's not many nations people consider as cruel as Assyria. Mm-hmm. They chopped off people's heads mm-hmm. and would stack them up at the city gates. They would like skin people alive mm-hmm. and they would use the skin to make things. I mean it's like human handbags and stuff. I mean it was it was just <laughs> These are just wickedly cruel because I think sometimes we think, "Oh God's so mean! He's judging people." Like,
1: no, which that again, going back to Jonah, is why Jonah did not, not want to go to them because right. he's like, "I know you, if they repent, you're going to forgive them, and, and they don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't. <laughs> they, they don't. Yeah. I mean, they really didn't." Yeah. Sometimes yeah.
2: we are a little. Uh, these days, we actually can be hard on Jonah, like he should have gone. You yeah, know, God loves sinners, but these are <laughs> <laughs> these are terrible, <laughs> terrible people. Yeah, and
0: the. And people were terrified of them and (laughs) terrified
2: of them. And so now Nahum comes and says, okay, Nineveh, Assyria, they have conquered Israel. They did it with utmost cruelty. They did not do what God wanted. And so because of that, God's now going to judge them. Hmm. So here we go. God doesn't (laughs) just take care of the sin of Israel of his own people, any nation that sins, he's going to deal with them. And so let me just say why this is my favorite book. <laughs> not my favorite. It's not my favorite. It's, it's just up there. <laughs> this book was actually one of the most significant books in my personal story. Uh, many, many years ago, I was teaching at a Bible school that I worked at and I was given this little three chapter book because none of our other staff wanted to teach the book of Nahum. So I was like, okay, I'm the leader. I <laughs> you know I'll, I'll do Nahum. And, uh, God really rocked my world. Uh, personal, just context for me. I had been through a lot of abuse in my life, a lot of just abusive relationships, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, just it, it pretty on a, a, a significant scale. It's all significant for anybody, but it was pretty significant. But at that point in my life, I was not actually able to talk to anyone about it. My husband knew about it, but it was like, I was kind of at that. I'm fine. Everything's good. Everything's good. I'm fine. Moving on. Past is the past. This is just how it is. And then I read this book. And the opening verse, when you, when listeners, when you're listening to the reading after this part is the Lord is a jealous God. He is filled with vengeance and rage, and he takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry but his power is great. And he never lets the guilty go unpunished. And I had, in trying to talk about my abuse in the past, had gone to people and basically got this response, forgive, not a big deal. God heals, move on. Or, oh, that's nice. Let's change the subject because they couldn't handle it. And it was basically total flatline emotion, Mm -hmm. And that was my response, total flatline emotion. And then I read a book about how God feels about his people being abused and how God reacts. And God does not look at that and shrug his shoulders and say, ah, eh, you know, too bad. I mean, forgive and forget and let's move on. This is a book where he rages. He rages, and I did not rage against even what had happened to me, but God was raging, and I saw myself in this. I saw myself, and I thought, and I realized as I read this over and over again as I was preparing to teach it, that God was more angry and was feeling more distraught about my abuse than even I was. Mm -hmm. And that when we refuse to be righteously anger, angry against sin and injustice and abuse, we devalue the person who has been abused. Righteous anger gives value to a person's life. Unrighteous anger takes value from a person's life. And so this was the first part of God's word that showed me, Lindsay, what was done to you was not just like, ah, too bad. It was wrong, and God rages against it. And I, for the first time, was able to say, I deserved to be treated better because I'm an image bearer. I'm his daughter. And so this is, I think sometimes we... People think, oh, we don't want an angry God because people won't want to serve that God. No, we don't want a God who refuses to get angry because that's a God who is indifferent to our sexual abuse, to our spiritual abuse, to the adultery we've experienced, to the parents that have abused. We don't want a God who's indifferent. Mm -hmm. And those who are listening... If you have been wounded and hurt and sinned against, God doesn't shrug his shoulders. He says you are worth more than that. Mm. And he, he's angry. He's a- not uncontrollably angry. He is controllably angry because he hates it when his, his sons and daughters experience unrighteousness. Mm. So that's why I love this book. And I just think
0: it is so important in our walk with God to see this side of him. Yeah, definitely. And it's so it's so amazing that there's these books of the Bible that you think are just like throwaways kind of mm-hmm. but to like to be able to speak to us in our lives today is just the incredible power of the word of God. It
2: it is incredible and I think I think we all get it. I mean, everybody gets like if a little kid, like Chelsea, if your son came to you and said, "Yeah, my preschool teacher slapped me across the face today." Yeah.
0: <laughs> like Talk about the mother heart of God, like we did a few episodes yeah, ago. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. But but
2: we all get that. Like, mm-hmm. if your response to your son was, well, she might have had a bad day, or, oh, whatever. Are you hungry? I don't want to talk about that. Like, instinctually, we're like, no, yeah. he needs to see you rise up in a righteous way and say, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. I am upset about that. I am angry about that. We're going to deal with that because you are worth more than that, Mm -hmm. my son. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think we all get that the indifference is so painful, but righteous anger is very healing. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, this in some ways it's interesting reading these passages together. Uh, It it so shows the complexity of things. Like you've got a God who is judging Nineveh because they deserve it and because they were abusers and they were horrible that way. But you've also got a God who is uh letting, you know, this message is probably known by Judah so that they can say, Hey, those people that judged our brothers, Israel, those people that they're now getting judged. And like, we are doing some good things of reform right now, but if we don't stay faithful, like we're going to be judged too. So you've got the anger in, of God towards the abuser, but then you also, when God's children disobey, there's also, Consequence to that, so it. I think sometimes, like in trying to make this simple, we, we, you know, kind of dumb it down a little bit. But the the God is just so complex, and I think this paints like another facet of His character that we don't talk about so much.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, but like separating. God's love from his justice, you can't do it. You can do He is do just it. because he is love, and he is love because he's just. Yeah. And it's just one of the ways that you show it. You're right. We don't want to serve a passive God. We want to serve one that's just yeah. and hates sin. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but isn't hate irrationally or uncontrollably? Right, yeah. Like, he hates sin because he loves us and wants us to be free from it. Mm-hmm. He is always working towards redemption. And some of us refuse
0: it. Yeah. Definitely. But it's
2: always extended. Yeah. It was extended to Nineveh. When we read this book, just remember, it was so extended so graciously to them.
0: Right. And he was, like it says, he's slow to anger. It's he's been a so while slow. since he extended that yeah. grace to Nineveh. I wonder
2: how many <laughs> people, I mean, you know, we see this, how many through the gen- this complexity of Israel saying, how long are you going to let these Assyrians do this? Mm-hmm. Like, what about us? We're suffering here. Mm-hmm. And God in his complexity saying, but I'm trying to bring them back. Yeah. But at some point he's going to say, okay, I'm not going to let you just rampage the nations any longer right. and do this to my precious creation.
1: It's got to stop.
0: Yeah.
1: Those are the decisions I'm glad God makes and not us. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Thank you, <laughs> not Lord, capable. your sovereign.
0: <laughs> it was not in our, our hands. Definitely. Um, before we start recording, you were talking about some specific prophecy things that are pretty cool. Um, do you want to touch on those?
2: Yeah. So we have an overview in Nahum chapter one. is just kind of talking God punishes. He's a good God and, but he does deal with sin. And then just chapter two, it talks about what he's going to do to Nineveh. Um, and it, is really, it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of what he's going to do to Nineveh. And there's some very specific details that were fulfilled in a crazy way. <laughs> um, so in chapter two, verse three, it says that shields flash red in the sunlight, see the scarlet uniforms of the valiant troops. And it talks about, you know, these troops are coming onto Nineveh, you know, they're approaching. And who conquered Nineveh was the Babylonians who were assisted also by the Medes. Mm -hmm. And the Medes were well known at that time as people who were the red shielded warriors. And they actually wore some sort of red uniform. That's historically, I'm not just making that up. That's a (laughs) historical fact in just general history books. And so they, they would have seen this and be like, Oh my gosh, the Medes are coming. There's, this is, this Mm -hmm. is, What's coming? Um, and so, and in fact, people with red shields actually marched on Nineveh and conquered them. And then crazy. it goes on in verse six. It says the river gates have been torn open and the palace is about to collapse. And it talks about, you know, this river gates, this water flooding in. <laughs> and it's crazy because that's exactly how Nineveh <laughs> was destroyed. Uh, historically, they're not quite sure. What the, how the outcome of it was, but they know historically, archaeologists know that Nineveh was in fact, that's how they fell. They were flooded. The city was flooded. Uh, they don't know if they all drowned or if it was flooded to force the people out. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nahum prophesies this, that the river gates have been torn open, the palace, the capital city is going to collapse. And he tells them that you're going to be flooded. And in fact, they were flooded. That's exactly what happened. I mean, who else can know this but God okay. in his sovereignty?
0: That's why I love these books of prophecy because it's so it's so exact, it's so right on point and yeah, there's God just knows. no way there's just no way. There's yeah. nothing else like it. God
2: knows our tomorrow's <laughs> and our hundred years from now. Crazy.
0: Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for listening to, today to God's whole story. Hope you are encouraged by it, and we'll be back tomorrow in the book of Second Kings twenty-three, beginning in verse one. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second rank and the temple gatekeepers to remove from the Lord's temple all all the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by previous kings of Judah, for they had offered sacrifices at the pagan shrines throughout Judah and even in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They had also offered sacrifices to Baal and to the sun, the moon, the constellations, and to all the powers of the heavens. The king removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it outside Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley where he burned it. Then he ground the ashes of the pole to dust and threw the dust over the graves of the people. He also tore down the living quarters of the male and female shrine prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord, where the women wove coverings for the Asherah pole. Josiah brought Jerusalem all the priests who were living in other towns of Judah. He also defiled the pagan shrines where they had offered sacrifices all the way from Geba to Beersheba. He destroyed the shrines at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of Jerusalem. This gate was located to the left of the city gate as one enters the city. The priests who had served at the pagan shrines were not allowed to serve the Lord's altar in Jerusalem, but they were allowed to eat the unleavened bread with the other priests. And the king defiled the altar of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himnon, so no one could ever use it to sacrifice a son or daughter in the fire as an offering to Molech. He removed the, from the entrance of the Lord's temple the horse statues that the former kings of Israel had dedicated to the sun. They were near the quarters of Nathan Melech the eunuch, an officer of the court. The king also burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. Josiah tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had built upon the palace roof above the upper room of Ahaz. The king destroyed the altars that Manasseh had built in the two courtyards of the Lord's temple. He smashed them to bits and scattered the pieces in the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the pagan shrines east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, where King Solomon of Israel had built shrines for Ashtoreth, the detestable goddess of the Sidonians, and for Chamath, the detestable god of the Moabites, and for Molech, the vile god of the Ammonites. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. Then he desecrated these places by scattering human bones on them. The king also tore down the altar at Bethel the pagan shrine that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had made when he caused Israel to sin. He burned down the shrine and ground it to dust, and he burned the Asherah pole. Then Josiah turned around and noticed several tombs in the side of the hill. He ordered that the bones be brought out, and he burned them on the altar at Bethel to desecrate it. This happened just as the Lord had promised to the man of God when Jeroboam stood beside the altar at the festival. Then Josiah turned and looked up at the tomb of the man of God who had predicted these things. What is that monument over there? Josiah asked. And the people of the town told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted the very things that you have just done to the altar at Bethel. Josiah replied, Leave it alone. Don't disturb his bones. So they did not burn his bones or those of the old prophet from Samaria. Then Josiah demolished all the buildings at the pagan shrines in the towns of Samaria just as he had done at Bethel. They had been built by various kings of Israel and had made the Lord very angry. He executed the priests of the pagan shrines on their own altars and he burned the bones on the altars to desecrate them. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 29. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and Levites, all the people from the greatest to the least. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and he required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make a similar pledge. The people of Jerusalem did so, renewing their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord, their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Second Kings 23, beginning in verse 21. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord, your God, as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah but in the 18th year of king Josiah's reign this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem Josiah also got rid of the me- the mediums and psychics the household gods the idols and every other kind of detestable practice both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah he did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple Never before had there been a king like Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him since. Even so, the Lord was very angry with Judah because of all the wicked things Manasseh had done to provoke him. For the Lord said, I will also banish Judah from my presence, just as I have banished Israel, and I will reject my chosen city of Jerusalem and the temple where my name was to be honored. The rest of the events in Josiah's reign and all his deeds are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Judah." Second Chronicles 35, beginning in verse 1. Then Josiah announced that the Passover of the Lord would be celebrated in Jerusalem. And so the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. Josiah also assigned the priests to their duties and encouraged them in their work at the temple of the Lord. He issued this order to the Levites, who are to teach all Israel, and who had been set apart to serve the Lord, put the holy ark in the temple that was built by Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. You no longer need to carry it back and forth on your shoulders. Now spend your time serving the Lord your God and his people of Israel. Report for duty according to the family divisions of your ancestors, following the directions of King David of Israel and the directions of his son Solomon. Then stand in the sanctuary at the place appointed for your family division and help the families assigned to you as they bring their offerings to the temple. Slaughter the Passover lambs, purify yourselves, and prepare to help those who come. Follow all the directions that the Lord gave through Moses." Then Josiah provided 30,000 lambs and young goats for the people's Passover offerings, along with 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own flocks and herds. The king's officials also made willing contributions to the people, priests, and Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehael, the administrators of God's temple, gave the priests 2,600 lambs and young goats and 300 cattle as Passover offerings. The Levite leaders, Konaniah and his brothers, Shemaiah and Nathenel, as well as Hashabiah, Jael, and Jozebed, gave 5,000 lambs and young goats and 500 cattle to the Levites for their Passover offerings. When everything was ready for the Passover celebration, the priests and the Levites took their places, organized by their divisions, as the king commanded. The Levites then slaughtered the Passover lambs and presented the blood to the priests, who sprinkled the blood on the altar while the Levites prepared the animals. They divided the burnt offerings among the people by their family groups so they could offer to them to the Lord as prescribed in the book of Moses. They did the same with the cattle. Then they roasted the Passover lambs as prescribed, and they boiled the holy offerings in pots, kettles, and pans, and brought them out quickly so the people could eat them. Afterward, the Levites prepared Passover offerings for themselves and for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, because the priests had been busy from morning until night offering the burnt offerings and the fat portions." The Levites took responsibility for all these preparations. The musicians, descendants of Asaph, were in their assigned places following the commands that had been given by David, Asaph, Haman, Judith, the king's seer. The gatekeepers guarded the gates and did not need to leave for their posts of duty, for their Passover offerings were prepared for them by their fellow Levites. The entire ceremony for the Lord's Passover was completed that day. All the burnt offerings were sacrificed on the altar of the Lord as King Josiah had commanded. All the Israelites present in Jerusalem celebrated the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. Never since the time of the prophet Samuel had there been such a Passover. None of the kings of Israel had ever kept a Passover as Josiah did, involving all the priests and Levites, all the people of Jerusalem, and people from all over Judah and Israel. This Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign.
1: Nahum chapter 1 This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum who lived in Elkosh, the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in a whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Karm will fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him, but he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies, tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks, will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. Who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? This is what the Lord says. Though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. O my people, I have punished you before, but I will not punish you again. Now I will break the, the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temple of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountain with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows, for your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, prepare your defenses, call all your forces. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its splendor. "'Shields flash red in the sunlight. "'See the scarlet uniforms of the valiant troops. "'Watch as their glittering chariots move into position "'with a forest of spears waving above them. "'The chariots race recklessly along the streets "'and rush wildly through the squares. "'They flash like firelight and move as swiftly as lightning. "'The king shouts to his officers. "'They stumble in their haste, "'rushing to the walls to set up their defenses.' The river gates have been torn open and the palace is about to collapse. Nineveh's exile has has been decreed and all the servant girls mourn its capture. They moan like doves and beat their breast in sorrow. Nineveh is like a leaking water reservoir. The people are slipping away. Stop, stop, someone shouts, but no one even looks back. Look, the silver, plunder the, loot the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to Nineveh's treasure, its vast uncounted wealth. Soon the city is plundered empty and ruined, hearts and knees shaped. That people stand aghast and their faces pale and trembling. Where now is that great Nineveh, that den filled with young lions? It was a place where people, like lions and their cubs, walked freely and without fear. The lion tore up meat for its, his cubs and strangled prey for his mate. He filled the den, his den with prey and his caravans with plunder, caverns with plunder. I am your enemy, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Your chariot will soon go up in smoke. "'Your young men will be killed in battle. "'Never again will you plunder conquered nations. "'The voice of your proud messengers will be heard no more. "'What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. "'She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. "'Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses, hooves pound, and chariots clatter wildly. "'See the flashing swords and glittering spears "'as the charioteers charge past. "'There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, "'so many bodies that people stumble over them.' All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and now I will lift your skirts and show all the earth your nakedness and shame. I will cover you with filth and show the world how vile you really are. All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? Are you any better than the city of Thebes, situated on the Nile River, surrounded by water? She was protected by the river on all sides, walled in by water. Ethiopia and the land of Egypt gave unlimited assistance. The nations of Put and Libya were among her allies, yet Thebes fell, and her people were led away as captives. Her babies were dashed to death against the stones of the street. Soldiers threw dice to get Egyptian officers as servants. All their leaders were bound in chains." And you, Nineveh, will also stagger like a drunkard. You will hide for fear of the attacking enemy. All your fortresses will fall. They will be devoured like ripe figs and fall into the mouths of those who shake the trees. Your troops will be as weak as and as helpless as women. The gates of your la- land will be opened wide to the enemy and set on fire and burned. Get ready for the siege. Store up water. Strengthen the defenses. Get into the pits to trample clay and pack it into molds, making bricks to repair the walls. But the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down. The enemy will consume you like locusts, devouring everything they see. There will be no escape, even if you multiply like swarming locusts. Your merchants have multiplied until they outnumber the stars. But like a swarm of locusts, they strip the land and fly away. Your guards and officials are also like sw- swarming locusts that crowd together in the hedge on a cold day but like locusts that fly away when the sun comes up all of them will fly away and disappear your shepherds are asleep O assyrian king your princes lie dead in the dust your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together there is no healing for your wounds your injury is fatal all who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your continued cruelty